Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Habakkuk. Next in line in our fall preaching series, which is going through all of the minor prophets. If you're visiting with us for the first time today, that's an explanation for why we're actually in Habakkuk. And I'm guessing there's a good chance that, <clears throat> that many of you have never heard a sermon preached on Habakkuk. I have never heard one or delivered one before. This is the first for all of us, I'm guessing. Uh, it's part of a series that embodies our commitment to the fact that all of God's Word speak to, speaks to us, as obscure as it may be, as strange as its images may be. All of it is preserved for us by God's providence because it has something that we need to hear. And that's true about Habakkuk just as much as anything else that we've looked at. Um, Habakkuk is unique among the prophets because it is not so much a promise of judgment. It seems like that's what we've been doing every week is trying to understand judgment. As it is, it has judgment language in it, but it's not so much a promise of judgment as it is an, an interaction, a Q&A, if you will between the prophet who lives with a vivid sense of the reality of the world's brokenness and the God who he knows is in control over that world but still allowing these things to happen. It's a book about the problem of evil. The problem of evil is one of the most enduring challenges to faith in God. It always has been that way. It is that way today. Lots of different ways of phrasing this problem, but it basically goes like this. If God really is loving, like the Bible says that he is, like most people assume that he is if they believe in God, God really is loving, and if God really is powerful, if he's able to do whatever he wants, he's completely sovereign, then why is there so much evil and injustice and suffering in the world? Why is there pain if God could stop it? It seems like either God must be loving or good, but not powerful. He doesn't want us to suffer. He really hates the idea of us suffering but he just can't stop it from happening. That's one option. Or he's all-powerful, completely sovereign, but he's not good. He's not really loving. Otherwise, he would never let these things happen to us. That's the basic... That's the way the problem works, the problem of evil. Now, this is a problem that has got a couple of different sides to it. There's the intellectual side, the argument that gets made from this, from this problem against God even being there. It basically goes, if you claim God is powerful and you claim God is loving, and yet there's all this gratuitous, needless suffering and injustice in the world, then that means that the God you claim exists doesn't exist. It's impossible for him to. That, that argument once had some weight to it, but now even secular philosophers have dismissed it. It just doesn't work. Because the big assumption that's in there is that there isn't a reason for the evil and injustice and suffering that's in the world. The, the, the assumption is that just because we can't see why those things might happen, then therefore there must be no reason for them to happen, and that God that we talk about can't exist. Well, that's a big assumption that we, we should be able to see everything that is, and we know that's not true. That's, that's just the intellectual side of that problem. I think the more difficult part of the problem, the, the thing that's hardest to live with, is a personal side to that problem. The question of, of how do we live in light of the world as it is, not so much is God there, but what, what does it mean that we live with a God who would let this happen? Can we really love that God? Can we trust him? Is he trustworthy? Can we stake our lives to him and the promises that he makes? That's the question that's harder to deal with. Not so much does he exist, but what are we to do in light of the, a world in which this kind of God exists? It, it's, it's the personal side of this problem of evil that gets at questions like what 
reason could God possibly have? So, yeah, you've worked me into a logical corner. Maybe there's a reason that God has for suffering, and I just don't know what it is. But what could it possibly be? Why would he let babies die? It's the why question. Habakkuk is one of the most important treatments of this pervasive question. The Bible's full of that, that question, why God, why are you doing this and allowing this God, runs like a thread through all the Bible. And Habakkuk is one of the most important treatments of that theme. It's tough to know exactly when he was writing or prophesying. There's no real date. There's no king that's mentioned that would help us to know. But the setting that it seems to come in was right before Judah, the southern part of the old kingdom of Israel, got wiped out by the Babylonians. And the reason that this book seems to fit in that setting is that that was such a bleak time. It was a time when even though Judah still had its own king and its own people and some kind of some level of freedom, that king was using, or the, the kings in that, in, during that time period were using their authority for all kinds of corruption. It was a really bleak time that prophets like Jeremiah wrote about and condemned the, the nation for. In, in other words, it was, they were using their freedom for things that ultimately got them punished and wiped off the map by the Babylonians. It was a bleak time in which it would make sense for one of the faithful one of those who was still living in Judah but not partaking in the evil that most people had given themselves to, when, when a person like that would ask God, why are you letting this go? Why are you standing for this kind of injustice? The faithful were stuck in a nation marked by evil power and surrounded by nothing but other evil powers, and there wasn't much hope on the horizon. It was a personal pain that Habakkuk prophesied from. And in that sense, this book reads a lot like Job does. Probably more familiar with Job, the, the faithful, righteous man who gets afflicted by all these, by basically everything that he loved gets stripped away. And eventually he reaches a breaking point and he launches into this Q&A with God about why God is letting these things happen to him. Habakkuk is a lot like that. The question is why? Why do you let these things happen? It's one we connect with and it's one that God answers in Habakkuk, but not how we might expect. What we want to do this morning is try to come to a, a close appreciation of the question itself and how Habakkuk frames it, how we have experienced it and lived that question, and then turn to God's answer and what it means for how we live in faith in a world that isn't what we wish it was. That's our task this morning. Now, if you found Habakkuk, <clears throat> would you please stand with me in honor of God's word? We're not going to read the whole book. We're just going to read from chapter 1. Uh, And then we'll we'll read verses 1 through 4. This is the word of the Lord from Habakkuk. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. This is God's word. You can be seated. Habakkuk opens his book with a question. A question that sets the stage for the rest of the entire book. <clears throat> his question is, how long, O Lord? Why do you idly look at wrong? Why do you look at it without doing anything about it? 
Why do you sit by while the law that you established, your own law, gets perverted? Why it's paralyzed and doing nothing? Why do you sit there while destruction and violence carry the day? Again, I mentioned a minute ago, we're not exactly sure when he was prophesying, but this description of, of his context sounds a lot like what Jeremiah was talking about. And Jeremiah was prophesying in the same place, in the southern part of Israel, around Jerusalem, during the time when a guy named Jehoiakim was king. Maybe I've got that wrong. I don't remember. You know those names. They start to run together. It's one of those guys. He was a, <clears throat> he was a there was a you know, Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim and... Anyway, it was one of the, it was it was Josiah's son. Here's the setting. Here's what had happened. <clears throat> Judah had been on a on a path of decline for a long time. But then this king Josiah comes to the throne and he rediscovers God's law and begins to to read it openly and publicly and there's this huge reform that takes place. The nation changes its course for a time while he's king, but Josiah decides that he's going to try to stop the Egyptians from marching through Judah to help the Assyrians. The Assyrians we've already looked at a couple times. They're the ones who came in and, and conquered the northern part of Israel. They were, the, they were the, the Nazis of their day, the superpower, the ruthless regime that was throwing their way around in that region. So Judah obviously hated them. They were everybody's enemies. Well, <clears throat> their empire begins to weaken a bit, and Egypt allies with them and leads an army through Judah, tries to come up through Judah to, to match up with them and, and help bolster their, their fights with other nations that are around them, just sort of as, as an allied military power. And Josiah is not having any of it. So he leads an army of Judah's men and tries to stop Egypt from coming through, and he just gets wiped out and gets killed. Josiah, the reforming king that you read about in the Old Testament, gets killed in battle. Well, Egypt <clears throat> decides that they're going to install a king of their own over Judah, one who will be faithful to them, basically do whatever they want them to. And they install one of Josiah's sons, the guy whose name that is, has left me, one of those J names. And they install him as a puppet king to basically do what Egypt wants and then get whatever he can out of the people while he is their king. And so the, the environment that's described in, in other parts of the Old Testament is one where those who are in power are just exploiting those who are under their power. They use them uh, and, and pervert what the law was supposed to do for their own good. That's what Jeremiah accused this king of in Jeremiah chapter 22. And it's exactly what Habakkuk is, claiming, is complaining about. He's pained by what he sees has happened to his people and he wants justice. But probably what Habakkuk wants is more like reform. He wants another Josiah <clears throat> to come in and clean house with the unjust people and install some just ones and lead Judah back to prosperity. That's what he probably wants. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> what he gets is something very different. Where Habakkuk chapter 1 goes next is the Lord's first answer to him. The Lord says in verse 5, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And that's not a good thing in this case. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. It's a reference to the Babylonians. Another word used for the Babylonians. 
that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. He goes on to describe them in this terrifying way. They just throw their power around, do whatever they want. They're coming through the earth, seizing things that don't belong to them. They're more swift than leopards and more fierce than wolves. And they're like eagles who swoop down and devour whatever they can get their talons on. They come for violence and they take captives. There's no ruler and no fortress that can slow them down. You can put up walls and they just mount, they just mound up the dirt and go over them. There's no stopping them. They are guilty men whose God is their might. That's the picture that the Lord paints of this army that's coming to give justice to the rulers of Judah. So in a sense, God has answered Habakkuk's complaint. He's looking around at his people. He's seeing that, that there's power being used for bad purposes, that there's no justice, and he wants to know why. Why are you just sitting there? Why aren't you doing anything? God says, I am going to do something. They're going to get what they deserve. I'm bringing the Babylonians in to wipe them out. But in this case, the cure is much worse than the disease. Habakkuk's response, verse 12, is only natural. What? The Babylonians? He starts respectfully. He acknowledges God's goodness and sovereignty. Thanks. So he starts out pretty respectfully in in verse 12. He's like, look, I get it. You're the Lord my God. You're the everlasting one. You're the holy one. You're the one who has no beginning and no end. We're not going to die. We get that we deserve judgment, that you've ordained them for some sort of reproof. We get that. You're the rock who doesn't move. You have your own purposes, but come on. The Babylonians? You who are purer eyes than to see evil, verse 13 continues, and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the the man more righteous than he? His, His complaint against God and God's take on justice only has gotten more intense now because God has raised up a nation that was worse than the nation they're punishing. And he's using them and elevating them, giving them more power in spite of how bad they are. He doesn't get it. And it makes sense why he wouldn't. These people treat others like so many fish to be gathered into a net. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net and gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and he's glad. And he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet for he lives by them in luxury and his food is rich. You see the the image. He can't imagine anyone actually being worse than the Babylonians who do whatever they want. And now here they come. It's like what people, some people say about chemo, that, that it's almost worse than the cancer itself. That the thing that's meant to cure the cancer is actually harder to deal with than the cancer. Both complaints, building on each other, ask the same fundamental question. Claiming that he's good and powerful and just, what is God doing here? And Habakkuk's complaint is is one that's not hard for us to sympathize with. It's one we've probably all had at some level. This is not, it's not very difficult here to bridge the gap between what Habakkuk was talking about and what we've sensed. Of course, his complaint was very specific. We've never wondered why God was raising up the Babylonians to, to wipe out someone that we thought was less unrighteous than they are. But in essence, his concern was that his experience didn't square up with his theology. He had one understanding of God, 
And then he had this experience that just wasn't squaring with it. And that's something we can sympathize with. He believed God was powerful and also good and just. And yet God allowed this suffering. He allowed this great injustice. This is not much different from questions we've had about experience. We ask things like, why do African warlords or diamond runners or porn producers or drug dealers become millionaires while innocent children all over the world are born into poverty they'll never outlive? Why does that happen? Maybe, maybe our questions aren't even inspired by the guilt of other people. It could just be rooted in our own experience and our, our inability to understand why God would let things happen to us if he is who he claims to be. Why did my loved one die? Why can't I find a job? Simple as that. Why are children, innocent children, born with disabilities? Why can't I just be happy? These are questions that we have that we share with Habakkuk. His questions make sense to us. They're ours. But God's answer to Habakkuk may seem as unexpected or hard to swallow for us as it was for him. Chapter 2 represents God's answer to the prophet's complaint. If you claim to be who you are, why do these things happen? God's answer is not a direct one. Habakkuk wants to know why, right? That's his question. Why? And God doesn't say why. He doesn't explain himself. What he does is promise what's coming. He tells Habakkuk of the end. He promises that justice will come. And he calls for faith as the only way to live in these circumstances. Now, that's, that's the basic answer we want to unpack through the rest of, of this section. We're going to walk through the details of chapter 2 just to pull out some of God's answer. And then we'll, we'll take a step back and try to bring some sort, of, some sort of sense of the whole, some consolidation of those details. So, so what does God say to Habakkuk? He launches into it in, in verse 2 of chapter 2. And, and he gives him a principle and then tries to play that principle out through the rest of the chapter. So the principle is this. He, he describes it as a vision. He says, write it down. Here's the vision. It may not be here. Here's what's coming. It may not have happened yet. It may take its time. You may wonder when and where I'm going to make good on this promise. But here's what's coming. Here's, in other words, all you need to know. You've asked why. Here's the answer you're going to get. Verse 4 is the vision. Behold, see this. His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, you, you may have a, a note in your Bible, I do in mine, about how difficult it is to translate these two sentences. They, they don't really, they, they come across clear enough, I guess, in our English versions, but there's a lot of debate about what they actually mean. And, and one of the ways that you can translate it, uh, that, that, that first line, is not that this person's soul is puffed up. That's what mine says. Your, one of yours may say something more like this. That the one who is not upright, the one who is not upright, will die. I don't know if anybody has that, but that's one of the possible meanings of the word that's also translated puffed up here. And that seems to make some good sense given what comes next, because it's about how to live, right? The one who, the, the, the righteous shall live by his faith. So the one who is not upright will die, the righteous will live by faith. Two ends that are possible. This is all you need to know, Habakkuk. No matter what you're seeing now, no matter what you want to know about my purposes, here's all it needs to know. Here's, what, here's where we're headed. Those who are not upright will not live. Those who have faith will live. The rest of chapter 2 is mostly about those who are not upright coming to die. It's about what God will do to those who Habakkuk is so concerned about now 
those who are guilty of injustice. It's a series of woes, W-O-E, woe. And it's, it's, one of those, it's one of those series we've seen in the prophets before that would normally have been read at someone's funeral. This is a typical poetic device that would have gone along with a funeral where you're sort of mourning over people who are now lost. And in this case, it's a precursor to the funeral of those people who were unjust and who were, who were going to get what was coming to them. We won't read all of the different woes, but I want to give you a sense of what it is God is promising to do to those who aren't just. So the first one starts in verse 6 of chapter 2. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. That's, that's a woe to those who are guilty of stealing things, right? Thievery. And the Babylonians are certainly guilty of that. They just went around taking whatever they wanted because they could. Well, God is saying that what you think you've taken is merely a debt that is going to come due at some point. Look at the way he describes it, verse 7, or verse 6 even. This is a person who's loaded himself with pledges. You think you've loaded yourself with possessions, but what you've loaded yourself with is pledges, IOUs. Verse 7 says, Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble, and then you will be spoiled for them? Look also at verse 12. This is another woe. A woe to those who build their cities based on violence. So, so here, there, this is a, a charge against the violent, but also those who exploit others and who amass things for themselves, trying to build up a name for themselves, but on the backs of other people. Verse 12 says, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. What are you doing when you do that? You're trying to make a name for yourself at the expense of others. But here's the end that they will face. Verse 13. Is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? You get the imagery? All they're doing is building something that some other nation is going to come through and burn down. They are laboring not for some sort of eternal name or some sort of fame or honor that was so important in the ancient world. What they're laboring for is some building that somebody else is going to burn down because the same thing they're doing to others is going to end up happening to them. And the reason that God sends, it says it is from the Lord that this is what will happen to what they've built. It's from the Lord that they're laboring only for fire, for nothingness. And the reason is that their glory cannot stand in the way of God's glory. Verse 14 says that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the end. That's what you need to know, Habakkuk, is that all those who are now doing everything they can to build a name for themselves against, against anyone who might stand in their way, the only thing you need to know is that they will fail and God's glory will pervade the earth like the waters cover the sea. That fits directly with the final woe in the series. If you skip down a little bit further, the Lord issues a woe to those who worship idols. If God's Intent here is to establish his name, to vindicate him, to himself, to show what he really is like in spite of the fact that these circumstances say something else about him. If that's God's intent, it makes sense that he would come at idolatry. Verse 18 says, What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? It's foolish, right? It's overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. You see the contrast? 
It fits with that previous woe that we looked at. The point is, God is going to expose all those who would challenge his right to rule. No matter what it looks like now, here's what's coming. God is not the kind of God that is under the control of those who make him. He's not made with human hands. He's not given his identity by his maker. He stands eternally and sovereignly over everything. The point is clear. They are empty. They are powerless. They and all who follow idols will be exposed while the glory of God is revealed unmistakably. God is not their kind of God. He's in his temple, and the only response is to be silent to him. Now, that's the details. That's God's answer to Habakkuk's complaint. What are we to make out of these details? If we step back, if we were to try to come to some sort of summary of what it is God's saying, to, in response to Habakkuk's question, what would it be? I think perhaps what's most notable about his answer is what it isn't. Habakkuk wants to know why. God doesn't answer that question. Remember, remember the distinction I made earlier between the intellectual side of the problem of evil and suffering and the personal side of the problem of evil and suffering? Habakkuk is asking a little more about the intellectual, maybe. about He wants to know reasons. He wants to be given some sort of cognitive, rational understanding for what God is up to. God is not obliging him. What God gives him instead is something to hold on to for living in light of the world that we have. He doesn't explain that world. He explains how to cope with that world, how to live in light of it, and how to, how to own a faith that will survive in it. Remember the vision that he started with? There's two kinds of people, those who are going to die because they're not upright and those who will live because they have faith. And here's what it will look like. Here's what, here's what you need to know in order to have faith. That's the kind of answer that he gives us. He gives a sense of what's coming, of a final and complete vindication of right. And rather than explaining why in order to get to that vindication, he has to allow so much injustice and suffering along the way, rather than explaining why he couldn't just fast forward through all of that stuff and just get to the good stuff, he just calls for faith in him. He insists that he's in control and he calls for faith. Or in the words of verse 20, he calls for all the earth to just be silent before him. To accept that he does what he pleases and that his ways are not ours. Now that's an answer that bothers us if we're honest about it, doesn't it? I think it bothers us personally because this is not the kind of God we want. It's not the kind of God that we prefer. We prefer, I think if we're honest with ourselves, I mean, it's going to look a lot different than it did then, but... I think we prefer a God of our own creation, just like they did. Just like the Babylonians who fashioned their own gods and put the kinds of colors and jewels and gold on them that they wanted, gave them the names and the identities that they wanted, did the sort of rituals before them that they wanted to try to get, get power out of those gods. They wanted control over their deities. That's what we want. A God who fits into our categories, who is what we want him to be. We want control. I got another vivid reminder of, of the way that this works. Uh, earlier this week, uh, Josh Shive and I went to the, uh, the Frist where, where they're having this Egyptian exhibit. And uh, it's really fascinating. If you guys are into ancient stuff, I mean, I just like old stuff. So if, you, if you're like me and you like old stuff, go to the Frist while it's here. It's really great. But one of the things that they have lots of, um, lots of exhibits on is the stuff that would end up in the tombs of these middle-class Egyptians when they died like 3,000 years ago. And most, most of the stuff that was in those tombs were trinkets or objects that they thought 
would manipulate the gods in such a way that they would get what they wanted in the afterlife. Most of these objects represented food or, I mean, I don't know, whatever. Take what you want, and there was an object for it that, that they thought they could fashion, build with their own hands, that would, that would get what they wanted out of this deity. They even believed in some cases that these physical objects they were forming were the deity itself, and that if they did the right things, if they, if they uh, pronounced the right spells, uh, they, then they could get what they wanted. I mean, it's a natural enough desire. We're not, we, we, we don't look back on them and say, how foolish are they? We, it's in us too. The, the basic desire is to be in control over the powers that affect our lives. We want a God that we can fashion and control by our own hands. And this God of the Bible is not that kind of God. He's not fashioned by human hands. He's not controlled by human categories. And finally, he's, he's not understood by human minds. His ways are his own. God promises final justice, but he withholds simple explanations for the means that get him to that end. He promises what's coming. That you can stake your mind to, your, your whole life to. He promises what he's like. You can stake your life to that. But he doesn't tell you why he takes the steps that he does, or why he allows what he does in the path from now to fulfilling the things he says are coming. And ultimately, as much as we want to know why, he does not give us what we're looking for. He calls simply for faith. You can see why now why it's so important to live by faith. Why that's where he started his answer to Habakkuk. Just trust me. Because he's the kind of God who is so big who is so far beyond our control or even our ability to understand that he doesn't owe us an explanation any more than he owes us a life free from pain or full of comfort. We get angry about the existence of evil, perhaps even resent God for it, because we want a God we can control, that we can finally and fully understand. We, we get angry because we don't like mystery, what we want, what we sometimes demand of him is answers. But though this God sometimes shows himself to us and in some ways, though he has told us about what he's like and what he's up to, he never fits himself fully into our categories, and he doesn't owe us that. His answer is more about what we owe him than what he owes us. Habakkuk asks why, and God says, You owe me a life-orienting, fully committed faith. That's the kind of faith that honors him as a God that's bigger than us and explodes our categories and explanations. And that's precisely the kind of faith that Habakkuk responds to in chapter 3. So what we've seen so far is Habakkuk's timeless question, one all of us have asked if we're honest with ourselves. Why, God? Why is the world the way it is if you are who you claim to be? God's answer is not one we expected. It's a call for faith from us, not an answer of why he does and allows the things that he does. And now at the end of the book, we get a sense of what that kind of faith looks like because Habakkuk's response is amazing. Remember, God's answer was just trust me. But how can we trust him? How can we live in faith when life hurts? That's the question raised for us so far in this book. What does that look like? Habakkuk's faith is rooted not in any explanations. We've seen God didn't give him that. It's not rooted in any change of circumstances. He still knows that the Babylonians are coming and they're going to kill and wipe out everything that he knows and loves. Habakkuk knows that's on its way for him. And he still doesn't know why. 
his faith is rooted instead in his convictions about God, the object of his faith. Why is God's sovereignty encouraging to him? That's the question. How does his faith work even in the context of what's coming? How can he say in verse 16 of chapter 3, I hear, I hear about what's coming for my people and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. He just crumbles when he thinks about what's coming for him. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. How does he do that? What does that kind of faith look like? It's, it's this. Chapter 3 shows us that a realistic faith that can see the world for what it is, not naively assume it's better than what it is, see the world for what it is and still believe, is a faith that's rooted in the sovereign love of God and fueled by the sufficiency of God. It's ruled in the sovereign love of God and fueled by the sufficiency of God. Sovereign love. Another way to pose the question we're answering here is, why is the claim to sovereignty in God's answer encouraging to Habakkuk? It's clear that he is. His whole tone is changed by chapter 3. But why? Verses 2 through 15 of this chapter, they use beautiful poetic imagery to celebrate God, to celebrate his control over the world that he's made. It talks about him reigning over those elements that seem so far outside of human control. To the ancients, the sea represented this powerful, chaotic force that you couldn't harness. The mountains represented bigness and immovability, the permanence of the universe. It's so much beyond our bodies which come and go, which wither and die. And yet God is presented in these verses as, as having complete control over these things. He's seen as trampling out the seas and shaking the mountains and crushing the head of, wick, of the wicked. God's all sovereign in Habakkuk's prayer. And that's, a, that's an encouragement to him and gives him peace. Why? Ultimately, sovereignty isn't enough. Because if the sovereign God isn't also good and loving, if he's not for us, then he's to be feared but not trusted. Certainly not a source of rest or peace. So why is it encouraging to him? He can rest in God's sovereign power because he believes the truth of Psalm 23. He would have grown up hearing it and reading it. That psalm promises that the Lord is also shepherd, right? The Lord... The, guy, the one who created all that is and who reigns supremely over it all is my shepherd. It's infinite. It's transcendent and also deeply personal, as personal as me being my shepherd, caring for me, ruling me for my own good. The sovereignty of God is encouraging to him because even if he can't know what God is doing and why God is doing the things that he is, Habakkuk believes that he knows who God is. And the character that drives even the most mysterious of his actions. He believes that his shepherd will not lead him into evil, will not give him up there, but through the valley of the shadow of death will preserve him and lead him on. His faith is in what kind of God God is, even when he doesn't know what God is up to. But there's another layer to this, to the sovereign love of God as, as, as a ground for Habakkuk's faith. It's in these same images. We don't spend the time to read the entire chapter, but if you're just scanning it with your eyes, you'll, you'll see the images I've already mentioned about him trampling out the seas and, and having um, complete sovereignty over what he's made. But there's another layer that you may also have jumped out at you. It's never stated explicitly here, but it seems like he's calling on images from Israel's own history, times when God has delivered them from powers that were outside of their control. So when he talks about trampling out the seas, is it, it's hard not to see 
the parting of the Red Sea or the, the stopping of the Jordan River so that the Israelites could pass through into safety. When he talks about the sun and the moon standing still, as he does here, it's hard not to think back to the story of Joshua, who when they were having this battle, uh, entering the promised land, were told that the Lord makes, makes the sun to stand still so they have enough time to complete the battle and win the victory. It's like he's quoting from the stories of God's deliverance of his people to, to look to the future, to a time that is unknown to them, into the context of why questions that are going unanswered to say, I can trust God in spite of those unanswered questions because I know this God is for me. And he's shown it not just through what he's told me about himself, but through what he has done in history for me and for my people. That's the source of Habakkuk's faith. The sovereign love of God in the midst of mystery and unanswered questions is enough for him. I think that's the move that Paul makes in Romans. One of the things that that some uh, New Testament gurus have pointed out is that you could read Romans, or a lot of it anyway, as a sermon on a text out of Habakkuk. So Paul starts in chapter 1 by quoting from Habakkuk 2.4, where he says that the righteous will live by faith. That's Paul's text that he's developing. What does it look like? What does it mean for the righteous to live by faith? Well, in Romans chapter 8, he doesn't quote Habakkuk, so to speak, but I think it echoes Habakkuk. I think Paul had read this book And he owned it. He had worked it into his core. And it now shaped the way that he understood everything. And he sees Jesus, and particularly Jesus' work on the cross, as making even more sense out of the same things Habakkuk was talking about. And that's what Paul's up to in Romans chapter 8. What is Romans chapter 8 about? It's one of the best chapters in all the Bible. It starts with reasons that we should have assurance. But it builds to the fact that this world isn't what it should be. That even all of creation is groaning, waiting on God to redeem the world. And then it builds to that verse 28 that's encouraged so many of us at so many different times. That, that you can know that, that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And no matter how mysterious and, and hard it is to understand what happens to us, we know that because we can trust in God and his intent to save us, we know that it's going to work for our good. I think that... that that, that Paul, in going there in Romans, is calling on the imagery of Habakkuk. Of course, the end of Romans chapter 8 is him saying, Who can do anything to us? If God was willing to give up his own son to save us, what is it that could separate us? Could anything, could, could height or depth or, or, or any other created thing separate us from God's love? The answer is obviously no. And that's the point of Habakkuk. That if we know that this God has already done all of these things to save us and he has staked his own sovereign identity to our good, then we don't have to know what he's up to, even when it's mysterious and painful, to know that he, whatever he's up to is for us and for our deliverance. We want answers because we want control. But security is not found in answers but in the person of God. God withholds answers, I think, sometimes about why he's up to what he's up to. Because he wants us. He doesn't want just our minds. He wants us. Security is to be found only in faith. In the confident rest in the power and the goodness of our Redeemer. God's sovereign love is what encourages Habakkuk when he doesn't get an answer to his questions. But there's another layer to it as well. And the end of chapter 3 describes this. 
It's his faith in the context of a world that isn't what he wants it to be and that is mysterious to him is rooted in the sovereign love of God, and he knows that God can, is powerful enough to do the good things he has promised to do. But it's also fueled on an, in an ongoing way by the sufficiency of God. The, the end of chapter 3 is one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible, I think. Let me just read it before we talk about it. This is what Habakkuk says. This is, this is his final word of response to God's answer to him. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no blood, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. What's Habakkuk saying here? Think about this. Habakkuk has just been given a window into his future. The Nazis, the the ancient equivalent of the Nazis, are coming. They're going to wipe out everything that matters to you physically in in terms of this world, everything that you know. And Habakkuk would not outlive the temporary triumph of that invader. It would be hundreds of years before anyone came back to Judah after being taken away to Babylon. Habakkuk wouldn't see it. He had to know that. The end that he was staking his life to, God's vindication of justice, all those woes, that was still a long ways away. He had to know that. And he was given no answer about why it had to be this way, about why God couldn't have found some other course. And yet he's responded to this message in faith. Why? The answer is because God was enough for him. He doesn't pretend that this life will get any better. He doesn't, he doesn't pretend things are going to get easier. He's realistic. He's not some sort of Pollyanna who just denies that the world is what it is, just pretends that everything's just great. He knows what's coming for him. He's essentially saying, in, 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 in verse 17 particularly, this references to the fig tree not blossoming and fruit not being on the vines. He's essentially saying, I could starve to death and I'm okay. I could starve to death and I'm okay because... My joy is in God himself. See, a faith that has to deny the harshness of reality, has to pretend like the world isn't what we all know that it is, that's not a faith that honors God. That's still a faith that's rooted in circumstances. That's still a faith that has to have everything go great for it to survive. A faith that really honors God and the faith that Habakkuk shows us here is a faith that has no connection to the circumstances we find ourselves in. He's claiming there's no circumstance, even starvation, that can rob him of his joy because his joy is rooted in God, and God himself is enough. That connection, that relationship, that source of good food is enough. That's why he can say in that closing image that that God, as his strength, makes his feet like the feet of a deer on the rocks. What's that image about? It's about stability. It's about no, no matter how rough the terrain is, no matter how easily a normal person could fall, His feet are secure, and God has made them that way because God has given him himself, and he is enough. Habakkuk's faith is not an explanation for why the world is what it is, but for how to live in this world as it is. Habakkuk's faith and God's answer to him is a call to let go. 
It's a call to rest in the strength of a sovereign God whose ways are not ours, but whose ways are good. It's a call to rest in a treasure of joy that can't be destroyed by any of the forces of this world. It's God's answer to how to live in the world that we're in. May God help us to live it. You pray with me. God is too much for us. We are so acutely aware of how broken we are and how broken our world is. We see the sufferings of other people as well as our own. It's all around us, and it's not controllable by us, and that causes us to fear. We know anxiety all too well. We know what it is to be out of control. And yet we are so... We're so drawn to resentment when we hear of your control over all things and that you would choose to do things that we wouldn't have wanted you to do. Would you break us of that? We pray that you would drive us from our own sense of our own weakness past the resentment that we might have for your sovereignty and into the rest and peace that we're designed to have. Would you give us a clear sense of Jesus, of your love for us that's shown on the cross? And in that, would you help us to find peace even when the world is full of storms for us? Would you make our feet like the feet of a deer? Because our feet are shaped by the gospel. That's our prayer to you in Jesus' name. Amen.